0: This episode of No Bad Food is brought to you in part by Whiskey Lane. Are you a producer of artisan food or drinks? Looking to get your name out there? Look no further. Whiskey Lane's team of social media, branding, and marketing experts is here to help. They'll take care of all that stuff for you so that you can focus on doing what you do best, making awesome products for your customers. Here at No Bad Food, we know that buying locally made products goes a long way toward making our world more sustainable, and that's why we're proud to be sponsored by Whiskey Lane. So, what are you waiting for? Grab your nearest artisan cheese or homebrewed IPA and run to whiskeylane.ca to find out more. And remember, that's Whiskey the Canadian way, without an E. Oh, you understand. It just takes- This spring, before the show was called No Bad Food, we held our second annual Munch Madness Bracket Tournament to determine the best food of the year. Countless guest judges phoned in week after week to cast their votes and decide which food was most worthy of the title, and in a finale that can only be described as not even remotely surprising and a one sided competition, Cheese defeated runner up Pies and took home the title for 2021. As a result, I'm dedicated to delivering you a ton of cheesy content this year as a way of celebrating its victory. But before we dig in, I want to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where I'm recording is situated with Within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As a settler, I think it's important to remember when the lands we occupy are not our own and to engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. I want to encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities of that area. Um, I had the immense pleasure this week of joining Tung La on his podcast, Ranked Top 5 Lists of Stuff That Don't Matter, uh, along with My buddies David Hall and Alex Smith, and uh, we were on an episode called Top 5 Canadian Foods. Now, I've probably talked a bit before about how Canada is, you know, a settler, colonizer nation that doesn't really have a right to exist and is on unceded land, and there is a storied and horrible history of genocide and racism here that doesn't get talked about enough, and I think, you know, this year it is being talked about a little bit more, and that's great. And, you know, as a person who cares deeply about food and also about social justice, this was a tough guest episode for me to be a part of. I'm not going to lie. To to talk about Canadian food means to talk about a culture of food created almost entirely by settlers, because there hasn't been enough representation of Indigenous food tradition here, because the settlers who, you know, run this place have done a whole lot of whitewashing and erasing Native foodways. So, you know, going into an episode about Canadian food... I I felt like it was really important that we had to talk about it as Canadian settler food, um, with a few exceptions, mostly because it's just food brought and slightly adapted by various European immigrants over time. We also tried to highlight a few foods, be they dishes or ingredients, that are indigenous to this land, like goose and smoked salmon, recognizing that even though, you know, the four of us on the call were settlers, Uh, our own food contexts are pretty removed from the traditions of this land, we still love a lot of things that are found here organically as well, and it feels, you know, important to actually, like, look at those and and distinguish what those are, you know? Anyway, all this being said, if you, like me, feel gross about Canada this year, um, which I cannot blame you for, given everything that's going on, uh, but you still want to hear us talk and argue thoughtfully about the local foods that we love, I would highly recommend checking out that episode of Ranked. Tongue is lovely and thoughtful and warm, and I think that we did a really good job of kind of towing that line between, you know, talking about the food that we do love, that is, food that's part of our culture here, and also acknowledging that, like, you know... (laughs) settler culture should not be a thing here um, and that's a really tricky and complicated kind of thing to talk about and I think that you know all the narrative around Canada Day this year has been a lot of you know cancel it don't celebrate it no fireworks etc and I'm on board with that but I think that it also you know it's hard right it's hard if you have grown up in a place and love the place that you have grown up and have connection to that right like you 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 can love something And it can be a complicated love where you also know that there is a lot of horrible stuff behind it. And like, you know, I think that food is a perfect example of that, where we can love the food that we have, we can love the food that's part of our context, while also recognizing that our context is one that is laden with genocide and and whitewashing of history and, you know colonization. So, anyway, lots of complicated feelings this week. Um, I would encourage you to think about your own complicated feelings if you're having them. Uh, and, you know, don't don't be afraid to do some research. Don't be afraid to look into what is being said. And uh, if you're looking for resources about this kind of thing, or honestly, if you're just looking for someone to chat and, like, vent to about how you're feeling about all of this, I'm around. Hit me up. You know how to reach me. Okay. So, coming back to the joy of food, coming back to the part of this show that you're all here for because you have read the title and you know who is on this episode, today I am talking to one of my food media heroes, the one, the only, Simon Majumdar. If you don't know Simon already, I would highly recommend you go and check out his podcast, Eat My Globe, a podcast about things you didn't know you didn't know about food. Fans of this show will absolutely love his show, where he digs deep into the history of food and delivers it in thoughtful, engaging ways. Simon phoned in to share his thoughts this week on British and American cheese. Cheeses, the recent Netflix miniseries High on the Hog, and to share a few tips about creative and exciting ways to eat different kinds of cheese. One of them, I think, is going to be an absolute game-changer for anyone who loves cheese sauces, specifically, and the other uh, has been an absolute game-changer for my breakfasts, so I think that, you know, if you're someone who likes an exciting breakfast you gotta listen to this episode. I think you're gonna love it. So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right, my guest on this episode is Simon Majumdar. Simon is a food writer, food traveler, food podcaster, food historian, frequent friend of Fieri. A regular fixture on the Food Network. Simon, thanks so much for joining me again today.
1: It's my very great pleasure, always. Thank you for inviting me.
0: We had our annual food bracket tournament this year, Munch Madness, to determine the best food of 2021, and uh, cheese reigned supreme this year. So, you know, the politics of food tournaments aside, uh, I'm curious about how you feel about cheese, what your personal relationship with cheese is like.
1: Well, my cheese, uh, my kind of relationship with cheese, rather, is I guess is... Like many people's, is a growing one because when I was, you know, very young, you know, and I'm in my 50s now, you know, the cheese that we had in Britain was very much what I call post World War ration cheese. <laughs> so you know, a lot of the cheese industry, both here in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in a lot of places, really suffered during the uh, period just after the Second World War because a lot of the governments basically had to cut down a lot of the craft producing just to produce volume. So, you know, a lot of us of a certain age remember eating big blocks of kind of government cheddar, as it was called, and thinking that cheese was a certain type of thing, and it wasn't particularly exciting. I think it grew with me in the 80s. You know, I was very lucky. Uh, Britain actually produces more artisanal cheeses than just about, I think, even more than France. So Britain has a huge range of cheeses because Primarily because of a company called Neil's Yard. Hmm. And when I moved down to London, Neil's Yard Dairies opened. I mean, there are hundreds. I think there are about 700 artisanal cheeses in the UK now. Oh, wow. And I began to go to a lot of the fine dining restaurants that began to open, people like Gordon Ramsay, Marco Pierre White. And they would have these extraordinary cheese plates, and they would also be bringing in plates of cheese. Obviously, uh, cheeses from France. So Britain actually has a very good relationship with cheeses. And then when I came to the United States many, many years ago, I wrote an article saying that America was where good cheese goes to die. <laughs> and that's because America did have a problem with its own craft cheese industry and kind of died and been, you know, almost put to sleep. And again, because of these same rationing, you know, problems and people's love of American cheese and things like that. But really, in the latest kind of sp- blurge of craft industries, you know, obviously we see craft distilling and craft brewing and craft, you know, all kinds of things. And craft cheese has come back. Uh, and I mean, craft with a C, not a K, <laughs> has come back in a big way. Right. And I very recently went to the uh, cheese, yeah, you know, the Great American Cheese Festival. Or, and there, I remember being in a room with over 2000 cheeses, all of which were made in the United States. So I think my love of cheese has continued and it's very rare for me not to have some great cheeses in the fridge. Um, I think really amazing cheese has become just more accessible now you could go to you know your big box stores like you know uh, Costco and all of those and find amazing cheeses in there uh, and I just think it's become people have become more educated into what cheese is mm-hmm. outside of you know those kind of block cheeses that we still see you know in the supermarkets
0: yeah and and there's certainly a place for those right like there is no in my in my books there's no such thing as a bad cheese unless it's you know gone rancid. But like, I think there is a place for those, right? Like when you're making a sort of cheese dip, like a queso or something, having a big block of Velveeta that you can melt down is a really great place to start. And the accessibility of that for the price is is kind of incomparable, right?
1: I think so. I, first of all, I'm going to disagree because there, sure. there are plenty of bad cheeses. <laughs> for me, for me, it isn't necessarily in terms of You know, going to a Velveeta or to a big block of American cheese because, as you say, I think they have their place. Mm. You know, when I have a hamburger, I want I want a couple of slices of American cheese on top of it. I'm not going to lie, and they definitely have their place. Or if I'm making, you know, a kind of mac and cheese, Mm. then I definitely want something like that. I don't like people getting too gourmet on those because (laughs) I don't know necessarily that the dishes need it. Right. Um, where where I have a problem with bad cheeses is. As you find with beer, as you find with all of the things where people are kind of growing, sometimes people feel the need to add flavors into things mm. that don 't necessarily need to be there sure you know we see it all the, we see it all the time now if i if I see another bar of chocolate with chili in it, if I see another beer with you know flavored with prunes or whatever i mean it's just like give me a break <laughs> and if I see flavors of cheddar or flavors of cheeses that they've added things to it just to show how clever they are mm. not how clever the process is and uh, then i tend to think they can be very there can be some exceptionally bad cheeses sure to me it's, it's all about the process and, and here's the thing i love about cheese and, and actually you know beer wine all of these things have the same that you take a process that is very much the same of you know of fermenting you know the milk and, and cutting the whey and pressing you know to make most cheeses and yet you can get so many different varieties, whether it's because of the milk you use, whether it's sheep or goats or you know cow milk or bison milk or all kinds of things. Um, I mean I've eaten the milk cheese as well when I've been in Mongolia or I but I think it's also the way that you store them, it's mm. the way that you age them, it's the way that you wash the rinds. And I think it's almost infinite now, you know the number of different beautiful cheeses, that we get and and as i said now in the united states if you're eating things like pleasant ridge reserve or all of these amazing cheeses you know it's it's just fantastic and when you go even to a relatively basic supermarket you will still see great cheese right. and I, and i love that
0: yeah i think there's something really really wonderful about having that access right because i think that I think over the past, you know, however many years, we've seen an increase in the accessibility of foods, right? Not just in terms of accessibility of, you know, allergy-friendly ingredients, right? Because a few weeks ago I did an episode with a friend of mine who eats plant-based cheeses and we were talking about how really vegan cheese options were terrible until a few years ago. Uh, But also things like, you know, like you're saying, a variety, right? You can go to the grocery store in your neighborhood, wherever you live, and probably find multiple kinds of cheese, Whereas, yeah, you know, growing up, we didn't necessarily have, I mean, you and I are different ages, but even, you know, growing up like in the 90s and the 2000s, the cheese selection was different from what it is now. And now you can kind of get a little bit more of that. And I think having that access to variety, not just with cheese, but with all sort of grocery items really gives us a better perspective and a, a bigger picture of what food can be, you know?
1: I think what people have learned, and by this I mean people in terms of retailers, hmm. are two things. I mean, obviously you have the kind of cheese dedicated shops sure. uh, that you'll find in most, you know, big cities. Will have someone who's dedicated to maybe doing cheese or cheese and wine, and they're serving, you know, and they learn they they will make sure that you get a sample. So Neil's Yard a Dairy, I come back to again in London. They have a rule in their cheese stores, they have three or four of them now, that nobody is allowed to come in there and be in there for more than about 30 seconds before they're offered tastes <laughs> of cheese. I love and that. And if you're ordering cheese and they're coming from big wheels or small sc- wheels or whatever they that you're ordering, the types of cheese, they will always give you a little bit of it to taste first. So that sampling is very important. Hmm. Because you know everyone has their different opinions on whether they want something with a bit more salt, a bit more cream, where they want something a bit more aged and crumbly, like an amazing cheddar. Um, and I think what they've done in some of the bigger stores now is they've learned that. So if you do walk around Costco, or say you go to Whole Foods, or wherever you go, you know if you go to you know obviously the big stores that you have up there, what you'll find is they have selections out. They'll have a few cubes of cheese for you to taste. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sampling is absolutely imperative with cheese uh, of, of all things, I think, because they can be so varied mm-hmm. and people often think they don't like, you know, cheddar is one of those things that people think it is this block of almost like plastic because we, <laughs> we get that cheddar, because it's a process as mm-hmm. much as a place. Right. Uh, but when you get a proper cheddar from the cheddar gorge, you know, in the West country of England, And it's aged as a wheel and it's got a few months on it and they put the little uh, holder in to get a little taste from the inside of it. And it's crumbly and it's salty and it's amazing, but it's not to everyone's taste. Mm -hmm. So I think that sampling thing is really, really important. The other thing I think that's important is we're learning that as well as applications of cheese and, you know, who doesn't love a grilled cheese sandwich quite frankly i'm going to have a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch today <laughs> who doesn't love you know a great mac and cheese mm-hmm. i mean you're 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 in canada you know people live on you know your craft dinners right. i mean it's it's, because it's it's a religion for you so everyone loves those applications but what i think we also love now is something i do all the time i'll just put out 10 or 15 cheeses mm-hmm. at home a few grapes maybe some sh- other charcuterie Open a bottle of crisp white wine and sit back, and and that's my supper. So I think mm-hmm. we've learned, I think we've learned application, uh, the applications, but I think we've also learned just cheese on its own is a really splendid thing. Yeah, absolutely.
0: If you're enjoying the show so far, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so that you never miss a new episode. While you're at it, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode with a friend. For every new rating and review I get during the month of July, I'll be donating $2 to Gender Creative Kids. Gender Creative Kids is an organization that aims to run workshops and community events for trans, non-binary, and gender-creative youth, providing gender-affirming gear, educational tools, advocacy, and help for parents learning how to better adapt to their kids' needs. Having parents who are properly equipped and affirming of your gender identity is a really huge factor for improving the quality of life for trans kids, and you can learn more about how Gender Creative Kids is doing that work at the link in the description of this episode. Um, Given that this show has been heavily focused on food for a while, uh, I went back and looked at all of our existing Apple podcast reviews, and a lot of them are pretty outdated and still talk about the show as if it's a comedy podcast, which is super fair. We've been doing this for six years, and the show's only been about food for like one and a half. (laughs) But the other thing that I noticed is that a lot of those reviews... uh, Use the wrong pronouns for me. I use they, them pronouns now pretty exclusively, and I don't really like when people use he, him pronouns for me. So if you, you know, have already left a review in the past, maybe take this opportunity to go update it, and I'm going to count that as a new review. Because, you know, even if it's technically just an update of an old one, an accurate recent review is a lot more helpful, and also a review where you don't use the wrong pronouns for me is wonderful. So yeah, go do that. Leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That is it for me for the mid-roll today. There is not a whole lot else for me to tell you about. If you haven't already gone and subscribed to the show on whatever platform you're listening on, please make sure to do it. If you haven't listened to the series that we did in June called LGBBQ, where I talked to a bunch of my queer pals about barbecue, go listen to that. It's really fun. It's really thoughtful. There's a lot of good food talk and also a lot of good queerness, and I think that you will get a lot out of it. Anyway, that's enough for me. Let's get back to my conversation with Simon. Well, I'm glad you touched on that. I um I wanted to ask, have you seen
1: High on the Hog yet? I have. What did you think? I watched it the other day. And, you know, first of all, uh, before we go into kind of the process, the the people in it, it's a beautifully made show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, obviously I watch a lot of TV food programs and I'm in a lot of TV food programs. And sometimes when I'm watching some of the new ones on Netflix or wherever, I'm like, okay, I, I get it. I know what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit formulaic. I know exactly what's happening because, right. you know I've done so many of them. Sure. This one, I think the pro the formula of it was pretty straightforward. You know, young person who's fascinated in food but doesn't necessarily know all isn't necessarily is an expert rather than an sorry an enthusiast rather than an expert goes around to meet experts to show them a, a nuance of food, and in mm-hmm. this case, obviously you know, African American origins and culture of the food. So I thought from that point of view, it's not doing anything new in that sense, but it was very beautifully done. Mm -hmm. But I think where it really worked for me, because I did love it, is A, the people they had on Mm -hmm. as experts. So Jessica Harris, who I've been fortunate enough to interview, who is just you know, just her knowledge of Uh, of the origins of, you know, what makes African-American food is just sublime. And she's incredible to talk to and quite intimidating in a nice way because you (laughs) are talking to someone who just knows. When you talk to her, there is nothing she doesn't know. So it's quite intimidating. I, I kind of moderated a panel with her at the Smithsonian once. And it was you know it you're 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 in awe of someone who absolutely has food writing greatness, right. I thought that Stephen satwhite was uh, satsfield rather was absolutely incredible. Mm. He just had this ability to listen. Mm. It wasn't about what he wanted to say, it was about him listening and responding and letting the other people come out and I thought that was fantastic, and you could have easily had someone who was a lot more kind of shouty and mm. it was all about them saying how great it was but I think he really allowed the other people to shine mm. um, and which for a first kind of time as host I thought was really remarkable and mm. I suspect we'll see a lot more of him yeah and I thought the 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 guests as it were or the experts whether it was the African-american cowboys or it was the uh, the young woman whose name I've forgotten in Houston who made cakes or whether it was BJ who I've met um, in Charleston who, uh, Gullah Cuisine all of them were allowed to show their mm-hmm. why they were on there yeah. and, and so I watched it, I binge watched it all in one go and I'm going to watch it again just because I thought it was remarkable
0: yeah, I, I, I feel that, I loved the, I had trouble I wanted to tweet about it because I, I watched it and I enjoyed it so much and I was like oh, I really want to like tweet something recommending this and all I could say was that it was beautiful and and in parts devastating and hard to put into words just how much I think people should watch it but the thing that I found really fascinating and you know this is partly because I am someone who wants to study and learn more about the history of food. Um, And, you know, I I think I told you this, I'm going back to school this fall to start a history degree and very much doing that from the angle of, you know, I know I'm going to have to learn about history kind of writ large in order to do this, but really what I'm interested in is the food side of it. Um, I thought it was really fascinating to learn about the history of mac and cheese as part of that series, where he goes to Thomas Jefferson's kitchen, <laughs> essentially, where like it is still the same functioning kitchen that was used to cook food for Thomas Jefferson hundreds of years ago, and learns about and tastes a historically accurate recipe for mac and cheese that was the sort of mac and cheese dish that popularized it in North America. And I just... In, in hearing about that and learning about that and in thinking about how that is, you know, a thing that I just take for granted as a meal that, you know, I can get, like you said before, up here in Canada, we just live off our mac and cheese. We live off Kraft dinner. We can get it for $1.99 a box. And, like, that's just, uh, to think about that having such huge historical roots was so mind-blowing for me. And that brings me to a question for you, which is, Has there been something you have learned about cheese that has blown your mind?
1: Well, first of all, actually, the the subject you just touched on then with Thomas Jefferson, I think Mm -hmm. is a really important one. I actually wrote about that. I did an episode Mm of my food history podcast on cheese. And first of all, Thomas Jefferson's a really interesting character. He actually found out and started making what's become mac and cheese Mm -hmm. in France. And he actually bought a pasta extruder from Italy to come to France when he was in France and then by the time it arrived in France he'd been shipped back to the United States and so they had to ship this pastor extruder back to him because obviously there weren't people in the US who were necessarily doing that kind of thing. Yeah. I, th- I, I think the thing that came out of that, well there are a couple of things I'll talk about. One is uh, the fact that mac and cheese, because it was prepared by enslaved people in the kitchens that that's how it became part of almost like the African American cuisine culture now the mm-hmm. soul food culture because as when they became emancipated they took a lot of these uh, dishes with them right. into into their cuisine and shared them with the world so that's how mac and cheese spread mm-hmm. it went from being something that was served. You know, cooked by enslaved people, but served in wealthy homes for mm-hmm. something that was then becoming much more widespread. So I, thought, I found that, and they didn't really touch on that in this just mm-hmm. because of time. Sure, yeah. Uh, but I think that's one of the uh, amazing things, just how food spread yeah. uh, after, after enslavement ended. The other thing that I, I go is right back to the beginning of cheese. So when you look at um, the very beginning of formations of society, of civilizations, or even just communities, and I get really, as you can tell, I'm getting really excited about talking about it. <laughs> Love it. The reasons that communities founded were because of two things: because of domesticating animals, mm-hmm. of which cows, particularly, this is is, is really important. Uh, particularly, obviously, in Europe, because mm-hmm. they weren't indigenous to the US, they, they were brought to the US cows, so they're not indigenous to the US. But in you know, the the first communities began to form. Two things: one was harvesting crops. Mm-hmm. And one was domesticating animals. Now, part of that was milk. Uh, part of that was hides, rather, because they yeah. wanted clothes and they wanted, you know, um, all of the things, and bone that they used for things and all of those things. But the other was milk. Right. And milk, obviously, was part of that. But cheese was one of the immediate kind of productions of that. Now, what's really fascinating, of course, this is primarily Central Europe, maybe going into the area, the kind of Fertile Crescent, Where you now have Syria, Iraq, places that do have, you know, cheese, fresh cheeses, and then obviously going west into Western Europe, you know, and ending up in with the Romans taking things into Britain as well. But it didn't go east. What happens is that naturally, people actually have an allergy to Mm lactate. So the the human body, the way it works is after a, a number of months as a child, when you need milk, whether it's a mother's milk or you know, cow's milk, that's enough. You'll get, you've you got the proteins, you've got X, and then you develop a natural uh, allergy to it, or certainly back in the past. But when you've eaten cheese, when you've had cheese as part of your culture, the west part of the world kind of developed this natural immunity to that. But the east part, still you have people, you know, have problems with lactose. Mm-hmm and so that's why if you look at southeast asia particularly there's no dairy in the in the cuisines right which is really fascinating but if you go to south asia which is where bison and other things like india where i come from then there's a lot of cheese mm mm-hmm primarily fresh cheeses like paneer so i find that really fascinating too
0: yeah absolutely i mean as a as a lactose intolerant myself i i mean you know a lactose intolerant who just deals with it because i love cheese i uh i think that there is something really really fascinating about like this idea that you know we as as human beings aren't really supposed to eat cheese and drink milk but we decided to and and it has you know become such a huge, huge part of cuisine around the world. like, and, and, you know, there's a testament to that in that, like, even some of those Southeast Asian countries are starting to incorporate cheese into some dishes, right? Because of that sort of globalization effect. Like, even though it's like, yeah, you know, we will have a tummy ache because of this, but it's delicious, so we'll deal. I think there's something really interesting about that.
1: I mean, I think when you go to... You know, different countries in Southeast Asia. Hmm. You know, it's interesting now, and this is influence. If I go to uh, one of the kind of more modern Korean barbecues here mm-hmm. in LA, they'll often have corn cheese. Right. Neither of which are things that <laughs> are indigenous to Korea, because corn coming from you know the Americas and cheese coming from the West. But it was—it's part of the surround of what you're going to get with your Korean barbecue in some, and and I, you know, and it's wonderful, and they'll yeah. they'll do it in their own way and mix it with some spices, and it's really fantastic. Or quite frankly, one of the best cheese shops I've ever been in my entire life was in, inevitably in Tokyo, okay. where they have the best of everything. Right, and you go in <laughs> and you go to one of the great department stores. If you go to one of the big department stores, if you've never been and you go down to the basement, they will have a supply oh yeah yeah a, a kind of a supply of shops selling cakes and meats and ibérico ham everything and they will have amazing cheese stores and they'll have ice cream stores so it's i think part of that's globalization and uh, but part of it is just cheese is really good <laughs> um, and i think yes there are some cases you know i know people who uh from that part of the world you know my wife is from from you know the philippines originally but uh i know people who basically just walk around with what lactate or whatever it is right. that you you pop one and then they'll go and eat ice cream because they it's so good yep. so but i just think the fact that humanity is uh kind of sp- split at one point between mm-hmm. people who ate <laughs> uh, dairy based product uh, produce and people who didn't whether it's butter whether it's cheese whether it's just milk but then there are other areas where, you know, people really did have it as part of their culture. You mm-hmm. know, I've been and drunk horse's milk mm-hmm. and horse cheese in Mongolia. Right. And one of the things that you have when you go to Mongolia is they will, inside the yurt, the big tent in which, yeah, you know, the more no, you know, the nomadic, and there are still a big, huge nomadic communities in Mongolia, the first thing you do when you walk into someone's tent as a thank you for them letting you in is there's a big stomach lining on the side that's filled with milk that they milk every day and you stir it and your thing is to help stir it mm. and that's to help ferment it into butters or to cheeses and and so everyone who comes in will give it 20 or 30 stirs and wow. I've done this and they will serve you a kind of semi-fresh cheese that's quite watery and you'll drink the milk and then you'll eat that and it's full of vitamin B and then they'll actually take the milk and ferment that, and it becomes an alcoholic drink that's about 5% proof and slightly challenging if <laughs> you're not used to it. Sure. Um, but, but they drink this a lot, and so you find some communities where it's absolutely central, uh, a cheese or dairy-based products, to their, to who they are and yeah. as and an identifier. And in many ways... It's an identifier for, you know, when you think of France and you think of French cuisine, apart from, you know, fine dining and Parisian restaurants mm. and all of the above, you think of wine and you think of cheese. Right. You know, that's what you think of. And everyone talks about, you know, French cheeses, um, even though, as I say, right now, Britain makes more of them. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, I love when I go back to the UK, it's hard to get them as well here, uh, but, you know, a great Stilton or Mm -hmm. a great, you know, those classic blue cheeses that to me are just exceptional. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is obviously I I like to apply them in different ways so my favourite, I'll drop this in now Mm -hmm. but my favourite application of of cheese in a sandwich Mm -hmm. is to make a classic PB&J Okay. With a slab of blue cheese in it.
0: Ooh. Okay. Okay. Sure.
1: So I want I want anyone who listens to this to go and try this. So get get really crunchy, really good, um, like whole wheat bread. Mm-hmm. Toast it. Peanut butter. Crunchy. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not an animal. Smooth peanut <laughs> butter is from the devil. Uh, <laughs> crunchy peanut butter. Jelly on the other side. And I can be jelly generous. You can have raspberry or strawberry or any of those things. You mm-hmm. can. I'm not going to be... But then put a slab of Stilton, or blue Cambozola or gorgonzola in the middle, and and just let toast that again, and it is truly one of the greatest sandwiches on earth. Okay,
0: I'm I maybe I'm gonna go to the grocery store after after this call. So maybe what I'll do today is pick up some blue cheese because that uh, I can I can almost. Imagine that. And I think you're onto something. I think that sounds fantastic.
1: Well, it's savory, it's salty, it's sweet. Mm. And if you get the bread, uh, it, you know, crunchy, it gives you, it literally gives you everything that you would ever need. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds incredible. I'm, I'm very into that. That actually also answers my last question, which was just going to be, what is one of your favorite applications of cheese?
1: That's certainly the most unusual one, I think, for me. And, um, you know, But I'm, a like I said, I'm a great believer in having a range of cheeses. You know, classic old school things like wrapping a brie in a sheet of pastry and baking it Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. opening up the top and then serving it with a huge mound of small boiled potatoes that you just dip into the brie. That's something from the 1970s when I used to go to restaurants and it's making a comeback and quite right too. Or a classic Fondue style. Now, here's a, here's something that I was actually put in touch with by one of my Food Network pals, mm-hmm. Justin Warner, who mm-hmm. I appear with on Tournament of Champions. Mm-hmm. So, in between uh, Justin and I, you know, doing our thing on Tournament of Champions, we spent obviously spend a lot of time together. We're talking about how we react to the chefs, and you know, uh, and we we do it in very different ways. You know, he's a lot younger and more kind of energetic, and I'm a lot older and more curmudgeonly when we're talking to the chefs. <laughs> Um, but he's also much more um, knowledgeable about molecular gastronomy mm-hmm. and a lot of those things, which you know I like. But it's not something that I, I'm an enthusiast, not an expert. But sure. he's very much an expert. So he told me about something that everyone should try. So it's a thing called sodium citrate. It's basically a derivative of salt. Mm-hmm. You can buy it on Amazon for a few, you know, dollars. And literally by melting any cheese. Any cheese. Basically, what you do is you put a li- a, an amount of liquid. So it could be water, wine, beer. You put in your cheese. It could be a shredded cheddar from the supermarket. It could be feta. It could be anything, even cheeses that don't necessarily melt. You bring that to a boil and you put a sprinkle of this sodium citrate and it makes the most incredible cheese sauce oh, ever. Interesting. And it holds. And he uses it to make cheese sauce for nachos. He uses it. And I use it all the time now. That's and cool. I bought some because he told me, and I was a little worried at first. It was like, what kind of evil magic is this? Sure. And now it's become a standard in in my kitchen. And so if ever, anyone wants to go and give that a try, I mean, with all thanks to Justin, because it's not my sure. knowledge. Um, give it a try, because that and that's my other kind of more recent application mm-hmm. that I love now.
0: I love that. As a, as a person who loves a good cheese sauce, I will. Uh, I'll have to give that a try as well. That sounds very cool. Well, Simon. Thank you so much. This was, as always, an absolute pleasure, super informative, and I think the listeners will have gotten a lot out of it. Before I let you go, do you have anything that you want people to check out? Uh, Obviously, you are the host of Eat My Globe, a fantastic food history podcast that... uh, I am very, very much a fan of. Uh, is there anything else you want people to uh, check out while you're here?
1: No, I, I, please do go and listen. One of the one of the joys of Eat My Globe is that the episodes don't date necessarily because you know they're they're about history, and yeah. so there's thousands of years <laughs> between some of it. So it's not it's not like listening to your latest political or sports podcast mm-hmm. that goes out of date immediately. So what I like to ask people if they do listen to it, and the most recent episode came out this week on the history of silverware mm. and the history of refrigeration. And they were two episodes that weren't big enough to carry a whole episode together. Mm. So I, I kind of crammed them together. But what I'd like them to do is if they enjoy it, go back and listen to some of those past episodes. I've mm. done one on the history of cheese, the history of beer, the last meal served on the Titanic. And I, I hope for people who like food history, it will become an interesting resource, or at least just some fun, that things you like you, we talked about earlier, things you didn't know you didn't know mm-hmm. about food history are just really amazing, so yeah, if people go and check me out on that and join me on social media to chat about anything, and it's you know, at Simon Majumda on everything uh, and so, you know and you know, I know we follow each other, you know, it, it is me chatting so <laughs> you know, it's not People or anything. I don't have people. You're not
0: one of those uh, corporate accounts that has a teenage intern tweeting for you.
1: (laughs) No, I I, yeah, I don't have anybody. It's 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 muggins here, which is sometimes why I'm a little slower because I'm doing other things, but.
0: Well, you're a good follow, and I would uh, I would echo the sentiment that people should follow you on Twitter and Instagram and definitely check out your show. I know that for me, like, uh, I, I've alluded already on the show that I am going back to school this fall, and uh, I want to thank you because I think that had I not seen you on the Food Network and gotten curious about what you do and looked into your work and, you know, Fallen in love with your podcast. I might not have made the decision to go back to school this fall because it hadn't totally clicked for me that this was something that I could get into. So thank you for inspiring me to do that, and I hope that I am able to, you know, do that in a way that honors what you have put out into the world.
1: Well, that's very kind, and it's it's nice to know that you know I have some influence. I say again, as a food historian, you know, I studied theology at college, not history. But I mean, there was history in there, but. I'm very much a, a, an enthusiast, not an expert, mm-hmm. and that's why I do this uh, podcast with the Department of History at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And they they come to me and go, "You can't say that." <laughs> you know things that things that might have been acceptable to say in the '70s when sure. I, you know, or '80s when I was at university, and they were like, "You can't say that anymore." And I'm like, "Oh, sorry." <laughs> uh, so no, but it's good to have uh, it's good to have people who are very much at the modern edge of kind of historical research, because they'll tell you about modern movements and modern approaches to things. Uh, and I think what you're going to do when you go back to school, it, you know, it's what someone said to me about it, before you play jazz, you learn to p- play piano, Yeah. and so what you're going to do with overall history is learn to play piano, and then you can take it off in the areas that you find really exciting, so you're learning the basics of historical research. And I envy you because, you know, I I wish I had time to go back and do that. I'd love to go back and attempt to be an academic again because I was a pretty bad one when I was at (laughs) university.
0: I feel that. There's a reason that I took a nine-year break from school. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Simon, thank you again. This was a pleasure. Take care.
1: Take care. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: That's it. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening to No Bad Food. Do you want to be part of the conversation? Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Food Pod. If you like this episode and want to help me make the show even better, you can head to Patreon.com slash NoBadFoodPod to donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you'd be joining the ranks of fine folks like Patrick, Gabriel, Kendalyn, Carlea, Thomas, George Poppy, Killian, Sarah Angelica, Anne, Andrew, Laura, Chantal, and David. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome perks, including the ability to request topics for episodes of the show. So if that's exciting for you, maybe you want to have an episode about beef specifically or maybe there's like a i don't know maybe you want to hear more thoughts about how i feel about canadian food specifically uh go donate at no bad food pod on patreon and uh you know you can make it happen literally as little as a dollar and you get control over the content of this show that is a huge huge power and it is yours at patreon.com we also have merch, and you can hit the merch link in the description to get all sorts of great stuff from our lovely friends over at Tee Public. and of course, you can support the show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcatcher of choice, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Our theme music is by Zach Ingalls, and our cover art is by David Flam. You can find links to support both of them in the description of this episode, along with links to everything that Simon wants you guys to check out that I am going to echo. You should absolutely check out Eat My Globe. Simon is delightful, and it is probably my favorite food podcast right now, apart from this one. But I'm biased. Last but not least, the show is produced and edited by me, Tom Zalat, as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. See you next week.
1: behalf of the Canadian people. Welcome, Welcome to the Gay and Grey, Grey and podcast. Gay and Grey
0: Montreal is a new social group for English-speaking gay elders from the 2 LGBTQIA
1: communities. So it's a good way to at least connect with people.
0: Members share their experiences, memories, and opinions on our podcast. Welcome to our community. I hope you feel well. I hope you feel expected. And I hope that you can share anything that you want this is some of my story and i hope you enjoy it oh have a great story (laughs) hello my name is stefan and please join me every week for my podcast some good friends a show where i talk to some good friends of mine and i think you're gonna like them just as much as i do because they're crazy and they're wacky and they're hilarious and they're definitely real people and not characters made up just for the sake of comedy It comes out every Monday early in the morning.